I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to be looking primarily at this passage, although we will also reference the passage uh, that Jack read for us a few moments ago in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking together and considering this main idea together this morning that deacons should serve like Jesus so pastors can shepherd like Jesus. Deacons should serve like Jesus so pastors can shepherd like Jesus. This passage that we're about to jump into this morning, there's a new church in Jerusalem. In fact, it's a megachurch. Just overnight, this church sprang from a few disciples to over 3,000 people. As in one day in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon, the Holy Spirit comes, and 3,000 people in a single day trust Christ. And as you read through this, you see also that as this happens, it keeps happening. More and more people are coming to faith in Christ. Well, this is awesome because you have people who didn't know Jesus who now know Jesus, but also as you bring these people into the church, it adds a whole other set of logistical issues the church has to work through. In Acts chapters 3 and 4, you kind of see a number of amazing things happening. You see the apostles continuing to do miracles. There's a, a story of a man who's lame, and they, and they heal him. And, and as this happens, they're, they're doing miracles. People are being added to the church, and all these amazing things happen. Well, by the time you get to Acts chapter 5, uh, the church is experiencing some hard times. So first, uh, the apostles are there, and they're preaching boldly. But uh, by this time, the church is so big that some people are threatened by it. And so they, they throw the apostles into prison. And uh, threaten them and they say, don't preach anymore. And they're like, well, we're going to keep preaching. And so they end up letting them go. And by, uh, and by chapter 5 also, you have kind of a, a set of people who are, I'll say, are genuine Christians giving sacrificially to the work of the Lord. And you have two people who by now are kind of notorious, Ananias and Sapphira. And they wanted to be known as sacrificial Christians, but they weren't that sacrificial. So they kind of like, they gave some money, but they lied about how much it was. And then, and then the Holy Spirit kind of intervened, told everyone, and, and, and judged Ananias and Sapphira. Well, all of this is small compared to what happens by the time we get to in Acts chapter 6. So in Acts chapter 6, you have the first major crisis in this church. And it's a division in the church. So the good news is that division didn't, doesn't just happen in the 21st century. It happened in the very first church right here in Jerusalem. The one where the Holy Spirit appeared in, in flames of fire personally. And just a few, few weeks after the church is founded, they have this major, major issue. And that's what we're going to go, jump into this morning. And so we're going to see in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. <clears throat> and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this morning, we're going to spend some time looking at two passages, and we're going to ask kind of two basic questions. And one, the first question is, why the church has deacons? Why do we have deacons? And secondly is, what do deacons look like? What is it that a deacon is, what characterizes a deacon? 
God's word addresses everything that we need for life in this world, and so it helps us understand this question, why is it that we have deacons? Well, if you look here in Acts chapter 6, there's a problem in the church. There's some needs that are not being met in verse 1. And the basic problem here is that this church is growing too quickly. Now, this on the list of problems that a church leader could choose, you would choose this one. You would choose to have, you know, we don't have enough parking spots, we don't have enough seats, we don't have enough food to go around. I mean, in the big scheme of things, it's a good problem, but the truth is, it's a problem. This church is growing too quickly, and so there are needs that they're unable to meet. As a church is growing, the list of administrative needs, the list of logistical needs grows as well. This is an organic church. There's not really much church structure at all yet. And so physical problems in the church lead to spiritual disunity. So the first conflict isn't over uh, you know, what's taught in the church or a certain kind of discipleship. Really, the problem is there are certain people who have physical needs, and those physical needs aren't being met. And the physical problem leads to spiritual disunity. It's not quite arguing over the color of the carpet, but maybe it's similar. It's a physical need, and there's this spiritual issue. Well, in this case, the concern is cultural as well as logistical. If you see there in verse 1, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. There are two H's here. One we're pretty familiar with, Hebrews. These are straight-up Jews. But there's another group here, the Hellenists. So what you have here, Jerusalem is like a lot of big cities in the world today. It's multi-ethnic. There are a lot of different people there. Hellenists are Jews, but they're a different group of Jews. So over time, as you read through the Bible and you read through uh, the hist- you read through world history, you know that Jews uh, were scattered through different um, invasions. Hellenists are people who are ethnic Jews. In other words, they're Jews by blood, but they're Greeks by culture. So they've lived in other places, maybe they've been spread a- around the world through, maybe, uh, through invasion or through persecution, something like this, and now they've come back to Jerusalem. And as they did this, they came back These groups were so different culturally that they actually had different synagogues. You'd have like a a Jewish, Jewish synagogue, and then you'd have a Jewish, Greek synagogue, people who were Jewish by birth, but Greek by culture. Uh, Almost like, I don't know, having different, and they might even speak different languages, perhaps. Uh, The first group probably spoke Aramaic, and the second group probably spoke Greek, maybe Latin. So you have these two groups. What happens is when, when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, all these people get saved. They all come together in one church. Well, up to this time, they've had their separate services, their separate places of worship. Now they come together in one church, and there's a divide. They're culturally different, and they see each other differently. So you have this, this, uh, this problem Well, one of the remarkable things about this church is its generosity. If you read Acts chapter 4, what happens is you have people selling property, selling land, selling homes, and what they're doing is they're sharing everything in common to take care of people who have needs in this first church. And so as they're sharing things, uh, by the time we get here to Acts chapter 6, they have what they call here a daily distribution. In other words, uh, in our world today, we have um, both uh, cultural... uh, church and governmental systems set up to care for people in need. But again, this is early. That's not the case that day. So what happened is all these people are pooling their resources, and there are people literally who don't have food to eat that day, and they come to the church, and daily they're giving away food. Well, what happens is when they come for food, all of the, the, the Jewish widows, the, the Jewish by uh, birth and by culture, those people get all the food. And then there are all these other people who are kind of, we'll say, the, the refugees, the immigrants, the people from the outside, and they're not getting any food. 
So you have a logistical problem, you also have a cultural problem. It's, it's actually kind of racial, although they're, they're, uh, they're similar in race, but they're different in cultural. They're different in culture. So you have these people who are being neglected. So the Greek-speaking widows are neglected, and it's led to this class conflict. And so this group of people comes and they say, hey, why aren't we getting any food? So the church has this problem. Maybe it's intentional, maybe it's unintentional. The truth is it's just growing too fast to take care of all the needs. So they come up with a solution. What is the solution? How do we address this? And really, the, the answer to this is they raise up servant leaders to meet practical needs. And these are what we see as the first deacons here in the church. There are all kinds of theories as to how to grow a church. And it's not that there's not any credence to any of them, but we see where the church of the growth comes from here in verse 2. The apostles say it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And it's right here that we have the introduction of the idea of deacon. What's translated serve tables is literally to deacon tables. Now, the apostles aren't saying they're above this kind of work. They're not saying it's beneath us because later we see Paul himself making tents to meet his own needs. So they're not above kind of getting their hands dirty. But what they're saying here is that how is it that God works in the world? It's through the word of God and through prayer. The spirit of God works through the word and through the prayers of his people. And so the point here is the the growth of this church happens because of the faithful proclamation of the word. So the solution can't be, well, we're just going to stop that to, to do this. We're going to be, become this. So it's necessary that these needs be met, but it's also necessary that, that we commit ourselves to the word and prayer. So how do we deal this? Deal with this. So the apostles propose a solution. Now, I imagine, you know, the way we read this here, it kind of like happened like this. But I imagine these guys getting together, they probably have, I don't know, a brainstorming session where they try to figure out, Guys, we have a problem on our hands. We've got needs, and we have no way of meeting these needs. They bring everyone together, and they propose a solution. They say, look, you find seven seven men, and they've got to be men who are faithful members in the church, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and so they're going to be the kind of people, and they need to be this kind of person because they're going to have a lot of angry people at their door. So you, you take people who are neglected, and they don't have enough to eat, and they're not very happy. And so they say, you figure this out, and you figure out how to, how to find these men, bring them back to us, and then we're going to set them apart to oversee this, uh, oversee this distribution. And so verse 4 tells us that the point of this is so that the ministers of the word can be committed to the word and to prayer. Well, in verse 5, everyone's like, that's a great idea. So they go out, they choose seven men, bring them back to the apostles, they pray over them, lay hands on them, and then they set them apart for this work. So we see the apostles leading the entire church involved in this process. What they said, verse 5, pleased the whole gathering. So the congregation now is involved in setting apart these men to function as servant leaders in the church. We've got this problem, they've got a solution, and what we see here is that it works. The result is that the church grows in health and number. So we've got this physical problem that leads to spiritual division in the church. And the servant leadership of these deacons, so it's physically oriented. It's making sure people get food. But what happens is they impact positively the spiritual health of the church in verse 7. The result of this is that the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, that last part is pretty remarkable because they're the people who are most resistant to this message. But they're the people who are actually leading uh, the, 
Judaism who come to faith in Christ in part because of this. Well, why is it that the church grows? Well, it grows because God blesses the ministry of the word and people are coming to faith in Christ. But remarkably, so the apostles are preaching, they're healing, they're praying, but none of this would happen apart from the ministry of the deacons. The deacons actually enable this to happen. So what is it that that deacons do? What we see here is that deacons serve to meet practical needs in a way that allows the gospel to advance and the peaceful unity of the church to flourish. So what they're doing is they're addressing uh, logistical and practical concerns in a way that allows the the spiritual ministries of the church uh, to advance, to grow. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit like this. So deacons are servant leaders who, who address practical needs so that the, the ministers of the word, the pastors as spiritual leaders, can provide fertile ground in which the gospel can grow. It's like they're kind of plowing the ground so that people will hear them. So everyone walks into church mad on Sunday. It's hard to listen to what the preacher says, right? But if people walk in and they're like, they're not hating each other or they're not fighting over food, it's a lot easier for people to sit together and have a meal together if everyone gets fed together. And so really the deacons are kind of, I'll say, ministers of unity. They're kind of taking care of those conflicts behind the scenes so that when people show up on Sunday, they're ready to have a meal together. So if, uh, at least this is the way traditional cars work, we're kind of coming up with, I don't know, newer and different ways to build cars today. But in your car, you add different fluids, and probably the most, uh, I guess they're, they're all important, but, but the one that kind of really makes the engine run and, and work all together is oil. So if you add oil to your car, it allows the gears to not grind on each other, but to work together smoothly. And I remember years ago, you know, going to some sort of auto show with my dad, and they were you know, advertising some kind of oil that, and showing how it just lubricated everything uh, better than kind of the old traditional motor oils. And now you've got you know, partial synthetic, you've got full synthetic, you've got high mileage, you've got your traditional cheap. You know, if, you're, if your engine leaks oil, you, know, you go with the cheap oil. So you've got all these kind of, well, what's the point of the oil? The point of the oil is that it lubricates the gears so that your engine will actually run. And if your car runs out of oil, what happens? Your engine seizes up and your, your car dies. You're, you're dead if you run out of oil. Well, deacons are servant leaders who essentially, they're like lubricating oil. They make sure that relationships work, that ministries work, that, that people work together in a way that brings peace and unity to the church. So this brings us to our second major question. What do deacons look like? Now, at this point, you know, we could put a picture on the screen of our deacons and you know what they look like, but that's not really where we're going we're gonna to head here this morning. We have two offices outlined in Scripture um, in the church, the pastors and deacons. There are three words for pastor in the New Testament. Pastor, which also means shepherd. It's most often used as a verb. Elder, which is kind of the most uh, common term used. And then the, and the third is overseer or bishop. And, but all these describe the office of pastor. Well, deacon is a little more straight up because there's one word for deacon. It's just creatively enough the word deacon. Deacon literally means servant. And the character qualities for both pastors and deacons are outlined in 1 Timothy 3, uh, part of which Jack read earlier. So what are the characteristics of a deacon? Well, before we get to uh, kind of their spiritual qualities, let's briefly visit a common question. It's a question that affects us here, and the question is this, can women be deacons? 
Okay, clearly our church allows for women deacons, but what does Scripture have to say? Now, don't worry, probably a few of you are a little bit uncomfortable. We're not going to get real controversial here. I just want to walk through this uh, to, uh, so we can understand what Scripture says. So, Scripture clearly teaches that pastors should be men, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, and 1 Timothy 3. But when it comes to deacons, we can argue scripturally both sides of the issue pretty easily. So, there are churches that are committed to Scripture that say women can't be deacons, and there are churches that are committed to Scripture that say women can be deacons. So, what does Scripture actually say? Well, the reason that this is, is because I could put on either hat. It's real easy to make either argument from Scripture, honestly. There's uh, some wiggle room here. So, we call it a, uh, a wisdom issue. And I could serve in good conscience in a church that held either position, but I do think it's important to allow men and women to serve in as many ways possible to uh, demonstrate the fact that all people are made in the image of God in a way that's submitted to the Word of God. So we're going to get a little technical here, but I also want us to be on the same page. It's important to draw whatever we do from the Word of God. So here's some scriptural data when it comes to women serving as deacons. So first of all, in Romans 16, verse 1. Romans 16, 1, Paul writes, and he writes to our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church at Kencre. So Paul writes to a female deacon in this early church. Some translations call her a servant, but the word is deacon. Now this gets a little confusing because when you read through your Bible, often when you see the word servant, it's actually the word deacon. Sometimes it's a different word, but it's often that word, and here it is, the word deacon. Secondly, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 11, there's this part about their wives likewise must be dignified. Well, the NIV does a good job translating this because it doesn't say their wives, it actually says the women. It's talking about women generally. The, the word here is a generic word for adult females that can be women, or sometimes it's talking about wives. It's used both ways. And thirdly, in that same verse, it says, likewise, women must be dignified. And it does this in the same way to use and it introduces new sections of church leaders. So in 1 Timothy 3, you have this, that, that, uh, that overseers must be uh, above reproach. And it says, likewise, deacons must be dignified. Likewise, women must be dignified. So you have the likewise and the likewise are in the same way, in the same way. And what it does is it introduces the fact that here's a group, here's a group, here's a group. There are three different groups. There are pastors, there are male deacons, and there are female deacons. You have all three of these. Now, that was kind of free. That was a side. But because sometimes it comes up, and honestly, it's, uh, it's come up here since I've come. I've even had a very lengthy text conversation with a member of this church about this who was having kind of a debate with their family. That's scripture. That's kind of the scriptural data on, on what this looks like. So now, spiritually, what are the characteristics of deacons? What are the character qualities that we should look for in, in, in a deacon? The first, uh, the full list is in First uh, Timothy but we have also some characteristics here in Acts chapter 6. The basic qualification, you could sum it up this way. I mean, what the apostles say is he has to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. The bottom line is that deacons should be men or women of spiritual maturity. They are Christ-like believers, Acts 6.3 and 1 Timothy 3. If you were to read through the entire list of requirements for both pastors and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, one thing that stands out is the focus on character over gifting. In fact, there's only one in both for pastors and deacons that relates to gifting, and that's that a pastor has to be able to teach. 
Other than that, they're all about who you are. In other words, it's more important that the leaders of a church model what looking like Jesus looks like, what walking with Jesus looks like, than that they be the most kind of gifted or charismatic people in the world. And this is because of this. So in, in our family, uh, my wife and I, we have one who's an artist and one who is not an artist. And I will happily volunteer and say, I'm not the artist. So a lot of times, you know, we get kids and, you know, my, my daughters will come to me and they'll say, Dad, draw me a horse. And I'll be like, I'll give it my best shot. And so we're sitting there and I'm drawing a horse. And at the end, they, they pick up the picture and they're like, Dad, that looks like a dog. And, and, and the truth is, they're right. It does look like a dog. It looks more like a dog than a horse. But I was giving it my best shot to draw a horse. Now they take that same, they take that same sheet of paper, the same pen to their mom. They're like, Mom, draw me a horse. And they got a horse. Well, what's the problem? The problem is that I can't model very well what the horse actually looks like. And so in the end, you're not sure what the picture is supposed to be. And that's kind of uh, the point here. The, having the right picture depends on having the right model. You've got to start with kind of the, the right idea in mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells the church, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, there's this, there's this pattern. Paul's life is a model. It's a picture of what it looks like to walk with Jesus faithfully. And in the same way, what we see here in 1 Timothy is that pastors and deacons are the kind of people that you can look like and say, draw me a horse, and you're like, that's a horse. They're the kind of people that, that walk with Jesus. And so you say, you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? You can follow that person. I mean, that's what Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So you want to know what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus? Look at him. Look at her. That's what it looks like. And that's the whole point of being a deacon. We're supposed to be models of Jesus. People picture Jesus by people understanding and knowing people who have walked with Jesus. How do you know who Jesus is? Well, certainly through the word, but then also through seeing the word lived out in someone's life. So they're Christ-like believers. And part of this is they have to be believable in the way they live. In other words, there are some people who claim to be something, but the reality is they act like something different. One pastor talks about this passage and he says, Really, these qualifications are remarkable because they're unremarkable. In other words, there's nothing here that's not required of every Christian. Uh, don't get drunk. Well, we're all told not to get drunk. Don't be greedy. Well, we're all told elsewhere not to be greedy. Uh, don't slander and gossip. Well, we're all told that elsewhere. So the Bible teaches that these things should be true of every believer. But the point is that the people who serve as pastors or deacons should live lives in a way that is consistent with, with what they say they believe. In other words, if there's a disconnect with what's coming out of my mouth and what you see in a daily life, it becomes hard to trust what's coming out of my mouth, doesn't it? If I say don't lie, but I'm lying to you all the time, it's a little bit hard for you then to actually believe what I'm saying. So if there's a disconnect between who someone is when they walk into church on Sunday morning and when they walk into work on Monday morning, that's a problem. Or there's a disconnect between who someone is when they dress up and walk into church on Sunday and who they are on the golf course on Friday afternoon. That's a problem. We're missing the point of what it looks like to model discipleship. In other words, the point of this is that there are models that show what Jesus looks like. Our words and our life must match up. We don't speak one way to someone's face and then a different way behind their back. Well, of course, no one meets these qualifications perfectly. But the point is that deacons are people whose lives are marked by growth in Christ and marked by spiritual maturity. 
It's not that they're perfect. Rather, it's that they're models or they're examples of what it looks like to, to follow Christ sincerely. So other people can follow deacons or model their lives after a deacon's life and know what it means to follow Christ. They're also faithful in their family commitments. In 1 Timothy 3, so there's this public-facing integrity, being who we are in our Christianity. But it's also important that we live the same way at home. In other words, if if mom or dad walks in a church, oh, hey, hey, and and they're all nice and smiley, but they're yelling and screaming and throwing things at home, that's not a good thing. There's this integrity in the way we live before others, but there's also this integrity in the way we live with those we see every day. The way uh, Paul says it here is that you're to be the husband of one wife, managing children and households well. Verse 11 says that the the women must be faithful in all things. In other words, if you're a lazy bum who doesn't serve at home, you ought not to be serving publicly at church. You got to be on your best behavior at home. You got to be serving your family. You you can't be uh, lazy, vegging out. You got to be serving at home. You're a one-woman man, so flirtatious relationships, pornography, any sinful sexual pursuits, they shouldn't have a foothold in our lives. But fourthly, and most importantly, we must be grounded in the gospel. The way that 1 Timothy 3 verse 9 says it is that deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they know the gospel and they hold to it. They know the good news that Jesus is the only Savior and that he'll save anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. Well, in John chapter 13, we get a picture of what this looks like in a practical way. Jesus is there and he's having a meal with his disciples. He's approaching his final hours before the crucifixion. And at the end of this meal, Jesus does something that just blows his disciples' minds. He grabs a towel and he leans down and he begins washing their feet. Now, this feels a little bit weird today, but it's not nearly as gross as it was uh, this time when Jesus washes their feet. These men are all wearing sandals. They're traipsing around through, through roads where uh, donkeys and, and cows and oxen and everything else, they're, they're dropping their stuff in the street there, and they're walking through. It gets rainy, a little muddy. We've had some rain, and you can imagine what this task is like. It is a gross task. And he comes along, and he comes to Peter. Now, Peter's not like the rest of the disciples. They're kind of like, go along to get along, guys. But he's like, no, Jesus, you, my feet are gross. You are not washing my feet. And Jesus says to him, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And Peter's like, okay, I'm not risking this. He says, okay, fine, Jesus, not my feet, but you can wash my heads and my hands too. And so Peter dives all the way in. And as this happens, Philippians 2 tells us that this isn't even the greatest act of service in Jesus' life. Philippians 2 tells us that the greatest act of service for Jesus is becoming humble to the point of death on a cross, dying a humiliating, gross, brutal death, and dying in the place of sinners. The life and death of Christ actually link for us what we saw at the beginning, the servant ministry of Christ and the shepherding ministry of Christ. So in John 13, he's washing disciples' feet. Well, in John 10, he links this and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In other words, part of the reason that Jesus died is because he's the greatest servant of all. He's the one who's, who deserves to rule everything and has the right to rule everything. He could call a thousand angels and strike all these people dead, but he humbles himself to the point of death on a cross. His death is so that we might have life through him. And by humbling ourselves like him, recognizing that we have nothing to bring to him, we too can receive life through Christ. 
Jesus lived a perfect life, died a death on a cross, and rose again from the dead so that we might have life through him. So if you're here without Jesus, the point isn't just that you see people who live out real models of Christianity around you. It's that you know the Savior, the one who lived the life that none of us could live, died the death for us that none of us could die, and rose again so that you might have life through him. So will you trust Jesus to save you? But before we close this morning, I want to just drill down a bit deeper into Jesus' model of servant leadership in John 13. Jesus washes his disciples' feet here at the beginning of John 13. But by the end of the chapter, Judas leaves to betray Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. And in the mix of this excruciating pain and chaos, he's about to die and be betrayed by his friend. He gives his disciples what he calls a new commandment in verses 34 and 35. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So think about that. Jesus washes feet, and then he says, if you love one another, people will know that you know me. Well, what's the result of the deacon's ministry all the way back in Acts chapter 6? Disciples multiply. Many priests become obedient to the faith. So the shepherds preach the word faithfully, But what is it that makes the faith believable? What is it that makes this faith compelling? I think at some level, it's the display of love that the people in Jerusalem saw in this church. It's people who are giving to those in need. It's people who are sacrificing for for the people around them. In other words, the gospel is words of life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But what is it that makes the gospel compelling? It's lives of love love lived out by people who say they know Jesus. And so the question for us is, not just as deacons, but as a church, does your life as a Christian, does our life as a church make the good news of Jesus compelling to those who don't know him? Does, it, does the love of Jesus lived out in our lives, does it look like something that people would want? Is it something that draws people in? Is it compelling to those who don't know him? So let's take a moment now and let's respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk to God in your seat, and then I'll close this time in prayer. So let's talk to God now.